It's Wednesday the 18th of March. This is the Monocle Minute. Today... Throughout his rise, which began in 2015, we've seen multiple, multiple arrests of various different sort of waves in Saudi society, intellectuals, clerics, human rights activists, women's rights activists, and including other royals. We look at the rise to power of Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. Also ahead, how working from home and self-isolating is boosting telecom companies. And our editor-in-chief on presenting a front when the cameras are rolling. I'm Tom Edwards in London. The Monocle Minute starts now. Last week, Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman reportedly ordered the detention of several of his relatives and rivals, the latest in a long series of apparently impetuous manoeuvres by the young prince, who is, at the same time, the presumed heir to the throne and the power behind it. Once seen as a liberaliser, this is another sign of his authoritarian side. Ben Hubbard is the Beirut bureau chief of the New York Times and the author of MBS, The Rise to Power of Mohammed bin Salman. Earlier, he joined Monocle's Andrew Muller, who began by asking Ben what he made of recent developments. Well, I think this is yet another one of these examples of MBS basically tolerating no potential or even you know, sort of possible threats to his rise to power. Throughout his rise, which began in 2015, we've seen multiple, multiple arrests of various different sort of waves in Saudi society, intellectuals, clerics, human rights activists, women's rights activists, and including other royals. And, you know, there's really no reason to believe that any of these people who were arrested recently posed a significant threat to him. But this is somebody who wants to make sure that nobody stands in the way of his ability to come to the throne once his father passes away. In the process of assembling your book, you did interview hundreds of people. It's extraordinarily well sourced. All things considered, how difficult was it to get people to talk honestly about what they know of MBS? Well, it became harder over time. I mean, when he showed up in 2015, very few people knew anything about him. You know, certainly people in the US government and the UK government who are charged with sort of studying the royal family to try to figure out who might be the next crown prince, who might be the next king. They had no idea who this guy was. And so there was sort of this scramble in 2015. Inside of Saudi Arabia, I was at that point still spending a lot of time in Saudi Arabia. I was still able to get visas and travel there. And so I wanted to know who he was too. And so I spent a lot of time trying to track down people who knew him from back when. And I found some, you know, people who went to high school with him, people who went to university with him, people who, you know, were sort of part of the royal entourage. And that's how I was kind of able to build this picture of who he was. But as time went on and it became clear that he was definitely an authoritarian and he was going to act forcefully against anything that he considered a harsh criticism or a threat to his ability to uh, consolidate his power, it did become much more difficult to talk to people inside the kingdom. And so I, you know, had to rely much more on either Saudis that I would meet abroad or other people who work on Saudi Arabia who live abroad. Because there was this sense when he first appeared, once people had got past the whole who the heck is this uh, period, sense or I suspect probably hope that, you know, this young man was going to be this ambitious reformer who might even drag the kingdom of Saudi Arabia kicking and screaming into, well, let's say the 18th century. Um, Did he use that to get away with establishing his power base? Was he quite happy for the world to go on thinking that while behaving more in the manner which your book describes? One of the things that's hard to sort of make sense of with Ed MBS is I think that both of these tendencies in his personality are simultaneously true. I think that they're both there. I mean, he he definitely put the emphasis in the early days on himself as a reformer. He was going to give rights to women. He was going to lift this you know, ban on women driving that had been placed for a very long time and sort of stood as this big symbol of the kingdom's oppression of women. He was going to diversify the economy. He was going to bring in entertainment and all these things. And he received a lot of praise for that. And I actually don't think that that was just PR. I think these are legitimate changes that he wanted to see inside the country. And I think that they've 
in a lot of ways been more successful than anybody expected that they would have been. So I don't see them just as kind of a cover for his other thing. But it's also been clear that he was not interested at all in any sort of political liberalization. The guy is not talking about democracy. He's not talking about freedom of speech. He is an authoritarian leader. And he, you know, has not hesitated to use the tools at his disposal in order to consolidate his power, whether it's arresting people, whether it's tapping into different hacking technologies and technologies to um, manipulate social media conversations, even going as far as kidnapping people abroad and dragging them back to the kingdom if they were doing things that he didn't like. Or kidnapping them abroad and doing things yet worse than that, which does prompt the question, which, which always intrigues me, not just about MBS, but about other authoritarians prone to extreme behaviour. When you look at the more notorious examples of it, whether it's the, the murder of uh, Jamal Khashoggi, the, the war in Yemen, the imprisoning of any number of dignitaries in the Riyadh Ritz, does it strike you that there is actually any overarching logic to this from his point of view? Or is he running the risk of basically undermining himself? I think that for Mohammed bin Salman, he wants Saudi Arabia to be a very different place than it is now. That is the overarching motivation. I mean, and he wants it to be a place that has a diversified economy. He wants it to have a place where Saudis, when they have vacation and money, they don't just flee abroad because they can't stand being there. He wants them to stay at home and spend their money at home, whether it's going to amusement parks, going to concerts, taking their vacations along the Red Sea coast and things like that. I mean, this is really the overarching. And he also wants, he wants Saudi Arabia to be a major player in the Middle East and a major player in the world. He's very happy this year that they have the presidency of the G20. He's looking forward to hosting the, you know, hosting the summit later this year. But there's also a risk that a lot of this credit that I think he actually deserves for some of these more positive reforms, a lot of this has been overshadowed by some of his riskier gambits and some of the crazier things that he's done. Ben Hubbard there in conversation with Andrew Muller. Up next, Monocle's business editor, Venetia Rainey, tells us about the positive impact working from home is having on telecom companies. Here's Venetia. As the rapid spread of COVID-19 increasingly forces people to work from home, telecom and software companies are reaping the benefits and facing an unexpected challenge. Companies across the world, from Google to Australia's biggest mobile network, Telstra, are cutting costs for consumers and working hard to ensure they can deal with the extra users. It's a boon for business, but there have been issues. Swisscom, for example, one of Switzerland's major telecommunications providers, has been overloaded by activity on its mobile network trebling this week, leading to some people temporarily not being able to make calls. Meanwhile, Microsoft's Teams programme, which is offering free six-month trials for its chat, audio and video calling services for businesses, saw messages delayed or failing to go through in Europe on Monday morning. The problem has since been fixed, but expect more hiccups as remote working becomes the new normal. It's time now for today's column. Here's our editor-in-chief, Tyler Brule. You're familiar with the setting. A mayor, governor, cabinet minister or head of state standing behind a podium. Behind him or her, anywhere from 5 to 15 other aides, assistants, advisors, junior ministers and extras in uniform. Behind them, some flags and a backdrop that might say Ministry of Health, Police Department, Educational and Correctional Services or perhaps a familiar coat of arms. I don't recall when a then-clever comms advisor thought of this United We Stand concept of bringing as many players as possible up on stage, but this is a performance whose time has passed. 
When Rudy Giuliani tried it out when he was mayor of New York, it was novel and achieved many tasks. But if tomorrow is a day in which you want to stay home and stay with your family and uh, give comfort and support maybe to other people that have been affected by this, it would, it would be a good day to do that. With some clever casting, he could master many messages. Look at my management team, New York. Check it out, world. Not only do I have a capable team who look good in uniform, I also have a black detective, Hispanic public health officer, and a lesbian fire chief. With some clever staging, a leader could appeal to his electorate's inner concerns about diverse representation while also showing capable stewardship. Over the years, this format has gone global, but with limited effect. Somehow the leadership phalanx works in the US, has a limited run in Latin America, and simply fails elsewhere. For big-headed leaders who like to own the mic, you're left focusing on the porky permanent secretary shifting back and forth in his uncomfortable loafers or the stand-in junior minister thumb-pummeling his Samsung Galaxy. In these times, we don't need a chorus of possible experts and advisors lined up behind a single leader. We need a couple of super-competent communicators who can deliver sound, timely advice, answer questions from the press corps, and return to the lectern at an appropriate point when there is something important to announce. Switzerland's federal council did a super job on Monday evening when the country moved into semi-lockdown. And President Macron more than made his point in his national address the same eve. Partout sur notre territoire, avec des premiers espoirs qui naissent, et nous continuerons aussi d'avancer sur le vaccin. Besides, who'd want to watch a bunch of ministers blocking the fine interiors of the Elysee Palace? For Monocle in Zurich, I'm Tyler Brulé. My thanks to Monocle's editor in chief, Tyler Brulé. Elsewhere on today's agenda. The home fitness industry has been a big mover in the past couple of years, with companies like Peloton and Mirror blazing a trail geared towards living room-friendly workouts. The sector's enjoyed considerable success, but faced lingering questions over whether it can truly compete with group exercise. Yet with gyms closing for now, such concerns are probably redundant. Beyond stationary bikes, many boutique gyms and fitness gurus are live-streaming classes online. Perhaps it's a return to the home workout boom of the 1980s. And over 50 landmarks around the world, including the Sydney Opera House and the Empire State Building in New York City, turned green for St. Patrick's Day this week. And while public celebrations at home in Ireland were understandably muted, in Connemara, in the west of Ireland, Finnish artist Carly Kola has laid a cable of a thousand lamps along a 20-kilometre stretch of mountainside. This extraordinary work, Savage Beauty, was commissioned to celebrate Galway's designation as the 2020 European Capital of Culture. Read more about today's stories by subscribing to our daily email bulletin at our website. I'm Tom Edwards. The Monocle Minute returns on Thursday. Thursday.